Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury advises quiet quitting may not be the smartest strategy, especially if you value your reputation. Dr. Chris Keeper, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, looks at the failed German nuclear plan and wonders if Canada should reconsider ours as well. And UBC infectious disease physician Dr. Jennifer Grant talks about masking and returning to school for students of all ages. So let's get started. We are going to talk about quiet quitting next. And let me just quote you a very a brief section from a column written recently by our next guest. Quiet quitting suggests those who explore the concept believe there's something better out there for them, like getting a better job. Quiet quitting can't help you get another job. Reputations matter, and so do references. This part of a piece uh, entitled An Employment Lawyer's Take on quiet quitting. The employment lawyer in question is a good friend of this show. It's always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Sanira Chowdhury from Workley Law in Toronto. Sanira joining us this weekend from San Francisco. Good morning and welcome back, Sanira. Good morning, Sterling. I'm on your time this weekend. I know you are. You're on the same coast. You're such a good sport. I can't believe that you're up early on a holiday uh, taking some time to jump in with us on the radio. It's always so much fun to have you. I do appreciate this. I think it's a bit of a sacrifice, and we we do appreciate it, Sanira. Good morning. Good morning. So let's talk about quiet quitting. First of all, a brief definition for those who are still unfamiliar with the term, if you would, please. Well, quiet quitting has become a bit of a social media phenomenon. It's been explained as not doing more than you have to. It's not, uh, it's the removal of the hustle culture. Um, A TikTok user says you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're ignoring after work emails, performing your role, frankly, within the confines of your job description only. Mm -hmm. Something sort of akin to like a work to rule. But I've also seen it manifesting in other ways, like doing less than the bare minimum, waiting for management to sort of uncover you not doing the bare minimum and hoping to trigger a separation package. So there's a negative connotation to quiet quitting as well. All right. So it does it does seem to be uh, negative in tone overall, Sanira, because, of course, the object of the exercise is to leave, right? It, it seems like it is. And there's been a lot of backlash and criticism over the term quiet quitting and that capitalists are taking a very negative spin on the term when really it's a revolution and or a cry for help from workers who are tired of being burnt out. But the interesting thing about the Sterling is that at the onset of the pandemic, many, uh, of course, advocated for remote work. Remote work was going to be um, the uh, key to the future of work. It was going to add uh, work-life balance, remove commute. But we're seeing the quiet quitting phenomenon really coming on after two years of remote work. So we know that remote work isn't the solution if people are still feeling burnt out, they're disconnected. And frankly, they've also lost that social fabric that you get from working. You're losing all the social interaction and connections that often give you a lot of purpose in work, which is why I think the quiet quitting phenomenon is having the traction that it is. So is quiet quitting an extension then of what we were, were told to expect six months ago as part of the great resignation, Sanira? 
I think it's the second coming of the, of the great resignation. Sterling, I think it is meant to be a bit of a revolution that employees are not going to go above and beyond to get promoted, that they're not going to work beyond nine to five. They want to have the uh, the boundaries between work and home to be very clear, especially right. if they're remote working. I mean, the quiet quitting revolution is only for those, frankly, who remote work and want to have those boundaries. But when it comes to people uh, wanting to quit or move on, um, we also see in this in the Great Resignation this this idea that better jobs are out there that pay more people can leave their roles and start new ones. And the issue with quiet quitting is that if you leave your last job by doing less, by not getting that reference, by not building your reputation, how is it going to help you get that better role, especially if you want it to continue to be remote when you burn the bridge at your last place of employment? So there's a, there's a lot of chatter online about doing as little as possible, yep. getting out to the gym, doing your grocery shopping, walking the dog, getting away with doing as little as possible while, while remote working. But what we're seeing with quiet quitting is that employees are not happy with working from home. They're not happy with not having the commute, not happy having the social fabric, and they're still looking for new solutions. But the solution can't be doing as little as possible and fooling your boss. Well, let me again quote from your piece uh, in the Post Media newspapers a couple of weeks ago. If you tank your relationship at your current job, you could leave yourself at the bottom of a very steep hill. Quiet quitting can't help you get another job. Reputations matter, and so do references. And and that's your the, the point of your article, basically. It may not be the smartest strategy, particularly for young workers at the beginning of a career. You know, Sterling, uh, when I started out as a lawyer a little over 10 years ago, everything, of course, was in person, running to courts, running to clients to get affidavits sworn, meeting clients at all, you know, times of day, weekends. But it builds character. It builds experience. It gives you the tools that you need to build a book of business later on. Many of our younger workers in this new generation are not getting those opportunities and actually believing they don't need them. And... While the world of work is moving towards uh, a remote working environment, people still need to find those opportunities to create their networks, create their books of business. And if you quiet quit, that means by doing as little as possible, you are not going to have that network that you will need to boost you into that new next great role. And the dynamic when you are a remote worker um, is very different. You must have great references. You must have a great reputation. For an employer to want to pay you sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars or more and never meet you, mm-hmm. wow, you must have really good refu- references. You must have a great reputation for me to want to trust you by handing you a big check every two weeks and never meeting you. So you've got to take your reputation very seriously. It is the new currency if it if if it wasn't before. I mean your reputation is going to really matter in the next few years. Indeed, it is. Especially if you want to, con- if especially if you want to continue remote work, re- remote working.
Let's talk a little bit, and you're the employment lawyer in this conversation, so let me just change gears ever so quickly, Sunira, and talk about that remote uh, business, because as uh, as you and I have discussed before many times, and it's so good to have you back, uh, this whole business of remote working is now morphing into a hybrid model as more and more employers are saying, okay, two or three days a week at, uh, at your place, uh, a couple of days a week in the shop, if you don't mind, and they're sort of negotiating this right now. It's good. There will be a line or a time scenario when employers are going to stop negotiating and they're going to say, okay, as a condition of employment, beginning next Monday, you need to be in the shop four days a week and you got to do one at home. Uh, deal with that. Uh, and that's coming. Can you feel it? I think it's here. You know, Sterling, we've seen the tech sector shedding thousands of jobs. We are going to see a glut of really highly skilled workers competing for the same roles. And the industry, industries like tech might might be conducive to some at-home work, sure. but we know that the greats like Elon Musk and other top leaders are saying, you need to be in office to do your best work. We need you in office to collaborate with your team to come up with that next big idea. It's not going to happen behind your desk sitting in your bedroom. Mm-hmm. And. Um, And people look at Elon Musk thinking he's sort of right wing on the topic, but you look at Goldman Sachs, you look at Apple, many of the big CEOs are all going the same way in the same direction, that in-person work is going to be key. And for those workers that um, believe that there is a whole host of better jobs out there and the grass is greener, I think we're, we're seeing that turn happen very quickly with this looming recession and people are losing their jobs. Competition is going to be high, Mm -hmm. and the market is going to go back in favor, I think, of employers dictating the terms of where you work. And if it's an essential part to your role to come into the office, I think people have to start really understanding and accepting the fact that they're going to do better work by being in office most of the time. I mean, we as a a law firm, we are in office every single day. We do think it's important to collaborate as a team on all of our files. And we're really selective about who joins our team because of that. That is what we're doing. We may be in the minority right now, but I don't think I'm going to be in the minority for long. Indeed. And back to quiet quitting as a, as a takeaway from this conversation, for which, again, we're very grateful. Uh, it's just not a strategy that works if you are particularly a young worker and you're looking to build a reputation. And the more dependent on, on remote work that you are, the more that reputation matters. So even if you're not terribly satisfied or happy with your current work circumstance, uh, by working to rule and doing the very basic little and scraping by is not exactly a way to build the kind of reputation that when you go to apply for your next job and they call it your job, and well, it doesn't work very hard, doesn't have a, a real aggressive attitude. That's not what you want to carry forward, do you? No. And you know what? If you really want to shake things up in, in the world of work we're in, Maybe offer to go in, maybe offer to be there five days a week, because even if you aren't the smartest with the best track record and the best reputation, that's going to set you apart at this stage in the game. Remote workers, they are going to be a little more transactional. They're going to be a little more replaceable. Those coming into work, they are going to be the shining stars of the next few years um, in, in many industries. So if you want a great job, offer to go in. 
Quiet quitting does not empower employees. It adds to the growing resentment toward remote work and fuels its detractors. That's the final statement in the piece entitled An Employment Lawyer's Take on Quiet Quitting. The employment lawyer in question, Sunira Chaudhry from Workley Law in Toronto. And once again, taking time out of her vacation in San Francisco to join us on the radio here in Vancouver, for which we thank you, Sunira, and uh, do have a wonderful rest of your holiday. Thanks, Sterling. Hey, it's Labor Day weekend after all, and the two of us are working. Makes sense. (laughs) Well, at least somebody's got to do that part. Joined now from Toronto by the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Dr. Chris Kiefer. Hey, Sterling. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back, Dr. Kiefer. Uh, Let's talk a little bit before uh, moving to Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Chris, it might help our listeners um, understand the position you take with respect to uh, encouraging nuclear for Canada to take a look at a failed experiment and one that the whole world is watching in real time. And we're talking about Germany, Chris, and the fact that they, to, um, to... kowtow to the Greens politically, the Angela Merkel government uh, deliberately took down the majority of Germany's nuclear capability in favor of deferring to Russian petro uh, supplies. And we all know how that's ending, and it's not very well, and it's really not very pretty. So talk to us about the failed German nuclear experiment, please. Uh, well, I'd rephrase that, I guess, as the, the failed German renewables experiment. But, you know, there's there's a twin tragedy here. Um, one is, as you're mentioning, um, Germany made this ideologic decision to phase out nuclear energy. This was after the Fukushima accident. Um, and they used to be powered 25% by nuclear energy. Um, you know, they have probably the best run fleet in the world. I mean, you can you can say a lot of things about Germans, but they're excellent engineers. They've won a hell of a lot of Nobel Prizes. They really know how to run uh, industry. Um, so absolute world-class nuclear fleet, which, you know, there's there's nothing similar in terms of Japan and Germany in terms of, you know, their, their geography and earthquakes and things like that. Mm-hmm. They have this, this jewel of a nuclear fleet, um, which provides carbon-free power, um, you know, very, very affordable, et cetera. Um, and, you know, they made a move to turn that off in favor of hooking themselves up to Russian natural gas. And so, you know, this twin tragedy is, is number one, that Germany has become one of the main financiers of Putin's atrocities uh, in Ukraine. Yes. Um, sending literally hundreds of billions of dollars into Putin's coffers. Um, and, of course, the other one is that the whole rationale for this energy transition they've been on, they've spent now over $500 billion dollars. Um, on a wind and solar heavy transition has not borne fruits. It's not resulted in anything like deep decarbonization, something we've achieved here in Ontario where we're able to phase out coal. Um, Germany still remains completely reliant on fossil fuels because, as we all know, um, the wind and sun often don't cooperate Mm -hmm. with energy production. Um, And so that's really left them in a lurch. Um, And I'm I'm glad you're calling it a failed experiment. We really do need to pay attention um, to to what is happening in Germany, because our politicians are are giving us a similar set of recommendations in terms of how we should proceed on climate change. And in Canada in particular, we have a much better option, and that is to continue to embrace nuclear energy, which has done an enormous amount. It's our second largest source of electricity uh, after hydroelectricity and it's carbon free and you know where i live here in ontario 
um, it's resulted in what everyone is talking about, a deeply decarbonized, almost zero carbon electricity grid, which is the foundation of, of taking climate action. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the other consequence of Germany's decisions vis-a-vis nuclear uh, reduction. Uh, and now with the, this, the pinch coming from Russia in terms of reliable supplies, and now that's a game Putin is going to be thrilled to play on the West, on all his customers for months to come. It's going to be a horrible winter. Uh, so Germany now, Chris, is reduced to returning to coal. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's again, for particularly the Green Party in Germany, which, you know, loves to preach on climate. Um, this really uh, reveals the, the hypocrisy here. Um, again, in this ideological fear-based commitment to shutting down nuclear energy, which is, you know, it's been assessed numerous times now, um, but most recently by the UN Economic Commission of Europe. Um, nuclear is the lowest carbon source of electricity generation there is, bar none. Lower than hydroelectricity, lower than wind, lower than solar. Um, you know, so the scientific evidence is there. Um, coal is the worst. It is literally the worst. And not just on carbon emissions, but on air pollution and many other metrics. And mm-hmm. Germany burns some of the dirtiest, worst coal in the world called lignite. Super polluting stuff. I mean, these plants kill probably about 1,000 people a year each with their air pollution. Um, you know, so that's that's a pretty shocking turnaround. But, you know, again, this really illustrates we're, we're told all the time, you know, wind, solar and storage is all that we need to transition off of fossil fuels and, and head into this wonderful world where there's no climate change anymore. Um, well, that storage is fossil fuels. Right. That's the only thing that can store energy for months or even years at a time. Um, it's either that or something like nuclear. And what our challenge with climate change is not just replacing energy from fossil fuels. It's replacing what we call fossil fuel services. So what, what do fossil fuels offer? They offer energy that's affordable, it's cheap, it's reliable. You turn it on, it's there when we need it. Um, and wind and solar just fundamentally don't do that. Um, so, so that's a real tragedy. I mean, this energy crisis is turning rapidly into a food crisis. And this is something that's really important to understand. Natural gas is a key feedstock for making fertilizer. And, you know, we couldn't feed 4 billion of the 8 billion people on this planet without synthetic fertilizer. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing fertilizer prices have have quadrupled or quintupled in Europe. And this is going to have major ramifications uh, around the world. So I, I can't overstate the seriousness of this and the responsibility that decision makers have for these horrible decisions that, that have led us into this current reality, entirely avoidable. Okay. And one, of, one of the things I want to tech, talk to you about this morning, and this is, uh, and you mentioned one word, you said one word in that preamble talking about Germany, and, and one of the reasons that they were so keen to get off nuclear was because of, your word was, Fukushima. And the last time I brought up this whole subject on the radio, I immediately received emails saying, I remember Chernobyl. You know nothing. And those were the kind ones. So, Chris, there's still this degree of skepticism vis-a-vis nuclear waste. Uh, the, and, and, and now there are stories about what's going on in Sweden. They seem to have uh, come uh, to some kind of solution. But nonetheless, in terms of convincing Canadians that this technology is indeed as viable as you believe it to be, you have to deal with nuclear waste. So let's have a go at that. Just, just quickly on the, on the topic of accidents. So, you know, when a coal plant runs perfectly, 
it kills more people every year than Chernobyl has killed them since the accident happened. So there's been a real radical misunderstanding of the the impacts of nuclear accidents. I mean, Fukushima really was a worst case scenario. You had four simultaneous core meltdowns of, of a large scale reactor. Mm-hmm. There has been at most one death related to radiation from that event. There's a real misunderstanding here. There is some danger to the on-site staff, although even in that case, in that worst-case scenario, the, the fourth largest earthquake ever measured um, in, in world history that shifted the axis of the Earth, it was so powerful. Um, we had these meltdowns, and there was no radiation-related injuries. I say this as a physician who has studied the highest quality evidence here in terms of the UN reports um, on, on the impact of that accident. Compare that to a, a coal plant that's putting uh, particulate matter out into the air every single minute of the day when it's functioning perfectly. Um, these are the kind of choices that we need to make. We're, we're mature people. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to assess things in, in that regard. But, you know, getting to this question of waste, yeah. I mean, nuclear waste is, is, is really being leveraged as a bogeyman. It's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's actually a pretty ideal form of waste. We produce an incredibly small volume of it because uranium is so energy dense. So if you were to get all of your energy from nuclear, um, including your flights, your travel, everything else, the amount of waste that you, Sterling Fox, would produce in the life of a, you know, fairly well-to-do Westerner would fit in one Coke can. That's how much high-level nuclear waste you'd make. Right. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. There's never been an injury associated with stored civilian nuclear waste in the entire history of civilian nuclear energy, going back 60 years. All of Canada's nuclear waste would fit in one hockey rink piled, one telephone pole high. That gives you a sense of the volume, and it's been safely stored and shielded. We do have long-term solutions. One is that, you know, in the future, we'll be able to use a lot of the energy that remains in that waste um, in in a new generation of reactors. The other is that we can put it underground. Um, And people worry because they say, hey, no civilization, you know, has lasted longer than a thousand years. We need to store this stuff for at least a thousand, maybe 10,000 years. We're putting it in rock. We're looking at geologic timeframes. And the rock that we're looking at right in my backyard here in Ontario it only allows water to move a meter every million years. And that's the only way for this waste to get out. Out of so many different artificial barriers, you know, again, a solid waste that would need to be dissolved in water and, and move through rock to get anywhere, it takes a million years for that water to move one meter. That's what really put my mind at ease about this, is understanding that the rock is the barrier, the geology is the barrier. And so, you know, we're making a mountain out of a molehill as we continue to spew coal and smog from natural gas out into the world. I think a lot of the green folks think, well, we don't need coal, we don't need gas. Well, just look at what's happening in Europe, right? That is the failed experiment. Mm-hmm. And there, some people are saying we just need to build more wind and more solar. Well, again, the majority of the time wind turbines don't produce, especially in Europe, the vast majority of the time the solar panels are not working, not just nighttime, but, you know, it's a, it's a cloudy northern hemispheric place, just like Canada. It's kind of like Vancouver, so, yeah. Just like Vancouver. And so, you, you know, except it doesn't have the endless hydroelectricity that we all envy about you guys at BC. That's you know? true. Um, so we have to make grown-up choices here and, and, and look at things, um, but we really need to shift the narrative and educate, and that's why I'm excited to, to be on your program to be able to do that. Our guest joining us from Toronto, Dr. Chris Keeper, the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and Dr. Keeper on Thursday night down in California in a debate that lasted well into the middle of the night, they decided to extend the life of their last nuclear power station, which provides about 10% of the overall power to the state. It was scheduled to close in 25. 
they extended the life of the nuclear station till 2030 simply to avoid blackouts. Uh, this is a quite an, an attitude change for the government uh, of California under Gavin Newsom. Uh, would this suggest that attitude changes might be in the offing for the government of Canada? Yeah, the the victory at Diablo Canyon, keeping that plant online for at least another five years, is a huge win. It's a win for Californians, it's a win for affordable energy, and it's a win really for climate and the environment. California, you know, there's a great saying I heard recently, which is, in the in the war between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated. California um, has passed a mandate recently that all new cars sold by 2035 will need to be uh, EVs, no more internal combustion Mm -hmm. engines. Three days later, they asked Californians not to charge their EVs, this relatively small fleet they have right now, because the grid is under so much strain. Sure. You know, so this this bill was debated, but I have to say the vote was near unanimous. Between the House and the Senate, there were only four people that voted against uh, this move to extend this nuclear plant. Part of this is because, you know, the governor has, I think, presidential ambitions. Yes. He doesn't want in five or ten years to be running for the presidency and his home state to be going through rolling blackouts, uh, you know, five or six times a year. That's not going to look good for him. Um, but it's, it is an amazing turnaround because this governor sort of built part of his political career on the promise to shut down this nuclear plant, again, for no, uh, no good reason, um, simply to kind of appease uh, folks that are uh, on the green or on, on the kind of left wing perspective. Um, but it would have been disastrous, absolutely disastrous in terms of blackouts. And again, every time a nuclear plant gets closed, it is not replaced by wind and solar Mm. because wind and solar don't do what nuclear does, which is stay on day and night and provide reliable power. So we saw that with the the nuclear closure in New York and Indian Point, um, you know, last year and with Palisades this year, you just see uh, fossil fuel use skyrocket. So I thank God they came to their senses. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of friends like myself who are involved in this strange new phenomenon of advocating for nuclear energy that we're, we're involved in saving that plant. Interesting. Dr. Kiefer, why is the government of Canada, particularly the Environment Ministry, uh, so fiercely opposed to nuclear? Oh, God. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. Um, you know, as you know, I, I confronted our Environment Minister, Stephen Gilbo, at, uh, at the COP conference, COP26 for your listeners. That's the big uh, UN climate conference every year. And I pointed out to him that in all four of the decarbonization pathways um, that this uh, IPCC, the UN Climate Organization, puts out, all of them call for a dramatic increase in nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. You know, our environment minister has a long-standing history as an environmental activist. He repelled off of the CN Tower, drawing attention to climate change, but he ignores the, the very inconvenient climate science that goes against his green ideology. So unfortunately, you know, he's very influential um, we also have Minister of Natural Resources, um, Minister Wilkinson, um, who is really taken to this idea that hydrogen is somehow going to, um, you know, be the fuel of the future. Mm. And it's it's an incredible example of energy illiteracy. This idea that you know hydrogen can be substituted for natural gas. Natural gas is an energy source. Hydrogen, we have to make it. It really doesn't exist in nature. Um, And it's incredibly energy intensive to make. And it's incredibly hard to ship and store. Um, So just to give you an example, I mean, when the German chancellor visited um, last month, um, the government, rather than uh, announcing plans around trying to bail out Germany with with natural gas, they said, oh, we're going to set up a big wind farm. 
uh, with electrolyzers that will turn water into hydrogen. We're going to turn that into ammonia. We're going to ship that across the Atlantic. You will turn it back into hydrogen and burn it in your power plants. I mean, this is so anti-environmental. You just have to think about all of those conversions, um, all of that shipping. And this is when Germany has three great nuclear reactors that are putting an enormous amount of electricity onto their grid that they're just planning to shut down willy-nilly. And we had our natural resource minister defending the German decision to shut down their nuclear plants in the worst energy crunch since the OPEC crisis and entertain them with this um, absolute delusion around you know, hydrogen being something that will bail them out. Um, I think, you know, similar to what we saw in California, um, physics will win in the end. Um, we're seeing around the world a huge turnaround. Germany is, is seriously reconsidering um, not phasing out its nuclear, its remaining plants. Sure. Belgium had a plan to be off nuclear this year. They've delayed that by 10 years. Korea has said we're actually going to stop building renewables and we're going to build more nuclear. Japan is planning on building new nuclear and bringing all of its old plants online. Um, when fossil fuels are expensive or scarce, that's when nuclear really thrives. When fossil fuels are expensive and scarce, that's when renewables really do not shine. And we see them for the failed experiment that they have been. Chris Kiefer, uh, always a pleasure, sir. I'm fresh out of time and grateful for yours on a, on a holiday weekend. We almost had a chance to have a coffee on your last visit to Vancouver. Let's make that happen next time. You're, you're wise enough to take some vacation time and hit the West Coast. Thanks again for this this morning. Always a pleasure. Great to be on, sir. Thanks for having me. None of the major universities and colleges here in British Columbia will demand that staff and students wear masks for the semester starting in a few days. And while all encourage vaccination and boosters, none of the institutions in B.C. insist you prove you're up to date on your vaccines. Such is not the case in other provinces. For example, in Ontario, universities like Toronto, Brock, and most notably Western in London, uh, they are required requiring masks and proof of vaccination for anyone coming to campus this fall. Thus, an article in the paper the other day entitled Two Infectious Disease Physicians on Why Western Has Got It Wrong. The two infectious disease uh, are, uh, physicians rather are Dr. Martha Fulford in Hamilton, Ontario, and Dr. Jennifer Grant here in Vancouver, British Columbia, where she is, among other things, an associate professor of medicine at UBC. Dr. Grant is on the line. Thank Thank you for joining us and good morning, Dr. Grant. Good morning and thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, ma'am. It's good to speak to you. Uh, it's important uh, to make the distinction, and I hope uh, I, I did okay in terms of defining the, the difference in post-secondary attitudes provincially between British Columbia and Ontario, as none of our post-secondary institutions are requiring, of course, they're all recommending and encouraging all those sorts of words uh, in terms of mask use and that sort of thing. But that's very different from a mask mandate, which you and your colleague define is, well, frankly, silly. Why? So I do want to make a, an important point about um, uh, this issue in that, in fact, public health in both provinces is not recommending other mandates for masks or for vaccines. So this is actually university administrations making those rules. Right. The, the, and, and that's really important, especially when it comes to the masks, because most people are no longer wearing masks in society. So asking students to wear a mask, and in the case of Western, it is only specifically in classrooms mm -hmm. that wearing a mask for a very, very small proportion of the time, forcibly, 
is really not going to make a difference in terms of any outcome. So doing that is really not logical and not in keeping with any public health principles. Well, it also undermines the credibility of, of those who are making these demands as they, as students uh, look around the country and realize, wait a second, why us and nobody else? Precisely. And, and, and why on university campuses where I think we can argue there is a disproportionate number of quite young people who are at lower risk from COVID and nowhere else besides um, hospitals where we are still wearing masks. Mm -hmm. Dr. Grant, you are an infectious disease physician, among other things, and there is a great deal of anxiety, as you certainly are keenly aware, among parents of students of all ages, from post-secondary right down to kindergarten, as school resumes in just a matter of days. And a lot of parents and parent groups in our province are pushing for, rather stridently, mask mandates. What do you say to those people? So I really do want to assure all the parents out there that the really good news story, if there is one from COVID, is that young people are disproportionately spared from any of the bad outcomes from COVID. There may be a very, very small number of vulnerable children um, who, who may get quite sick, but it is an absolutely tiny proportion of children. So first of all, children aren't very much at risk. Uh, Second of all, even if the children are in school and wear masks, when they go home um, and they go in the community and they play sports and they do all the things that children should do, Mm -hmm. not if they're wearing a mask in school and not wearing it in that um, in those other environments, then the school mandate is not going to make much of a difference. We also have data from BC and from around the world showing that schools really are not the place where COVID is most likely to spread. It most likely spreads in households. So masking in schools is not going to make any sort of difference in terms of long-term outcomes for children. And a lot of schools and boards of education have invested considerably over the last couple of years, Dr. Grant, in remedial uh, applications, uh, air filtration systems and that sort of thing, which can't at at all do anything but benefit uh, any environment, correct? Oh, absolutely. Air quality is a really important aspect of uh, making school a comfortable place regardless of COVID, um, and there is some suggestion that it may be beneficial for reducing the risks. I want to take, just pick on a sentence that you and Dr. Fulford included in your article a couple of days ago, quote, boosters provide little to no direct benefit to most young adults. However, taking away education and connection to community has harms that will last for years. But it's the first part of that sentence, Dr. Grant. Boosters provide little to no direct benefit to most young adults. This, again, seems contrary to the information we've been fed for the last couple of years. Booster, 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 go for it. Do it, do it. So tell tell us about this. So that's a really important point, and thank you for asking that. The, the issue is that there are people who definitely benefit from boosters. Those are people who are um, <clears throat> vulnerable for some reason, either by age or medical condition. However, a perfectly healthy young person is at very low risk from COVID, regardless of vaccine status. And so even if the vaccines are very effective relatively, absolutely they make little to no difference. And once you've had one or two shots as a healthy young person, the the value add of each additional booster becomes lower and lower, especially for those young people who have been infected, which most people have. 
And, and so now really we should be looking at individuals from their own risk benefit mm-hmm. and seeing which people benefit from boosters and some people certainly do. And for which people that is um, more of a personal um, preference and, um, and where the person and their physician should be deciding together whether a booster is a good idea or not. Right. Dr. Grant, can we back it up a step for just a second, skip and move to before boosters? Because now, of course, Health Canada has approved COVID vaccination for children uh, five and up. Uh, so would you and your colleagues recommend that process take place? So I'm going to defer to my pediatric colleagues on this. I'm not a pediatrician. I know that we, again, have not seen a lot of uh, children in hospital from COVID. Right. Um, but there are children who are vulnerable. And so I think really that should be discussion between um, parents, um, their pediatrician, and also in accordance with their own um, values as parents. And back to the application at the university level of these are considerably older students, much more capable of making decisions for themselves. Uh, you say that these on-campus mask mandates uh, involve the wrong people making decisions. They're not being made by public health professionals. They're being made by administrators and, and boards of directors. Precisely. And, and that's the thing that I find the most um, concerning about this whole process. We um, should and must respect what public health is saying. Um, public health physicians are experts in public health and have really good advice and have given us really good advice throughout the pandemic. What they are saying now is that COVID is here to stay. Mm-hmm. We all have to learn to live with it. And now people have to start making their own decisions about what degree of risk they're comfortable with. When an administrator, no matter how bright, starts making those decisions instead of public health, they aren't qualified to make those decisions and they aren't considering all the important and subtle um, issues that public health physicians consider. So in terms of uh, encouragement, and and as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, post-secondary colleges and universities in B.C. aren't requiring any mandates with respect to proof of vaccination or masking on campus, that kind of thing. But they are strongly encouraging and recommending mask usage. And I think it's pretty safe to predict there'll be a fairly high degree of mask usage voluntarily on campuses in B.C. this fall, don't you? I, I think so. And, and again, it really is important that we respect people's uh, choice and autonomy and that we respect when somebody chooses to wear a mask. Yeah. Um, and also when we respect when somebody chooses not to wear a mask. And therein lies some degree of social tension, particularly at the campus level, because there are some who are pretty intense about the choices they've made. Right. And I think that this is um, part of the recovery process from covid um, we have been under enormous tension and enormous pressure sure have. For, for, for two years. And um, I think that people just need some time to get used to the idea. Um, and it's an idea that I, I do want to introduce is that COVID is here to stay. We're not getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter what we do, no matter how careful we are, and many people have learned this in Omicron, um, eventually almost all of us will be infected. And so that's why it's really important to encourage the vaccines and the boosters for those who are at risk, because no matter how hard we try, we're just 
never going to be rid of this virus. And so now is our time to learn to live with it. Interesting stuff. And Dr. Grant, a final question to you, ma'am. Carol and I are getting ready next month to go for our annual flu shot. Is it likely going forward, given the, the circumstances you've described, where it's here, it's here to stay, we're living with it. Is it likely going forward that many of us will be, uh, will come into, fall into the routine of getting an annual COVID shot uh, in the same way many of us get our annual flu shots? It's certainly a possibility. I think we really need to wait for a tincture of time to tell us exactly how this virus is going to continue to evolve. Um, Many of the other coronaviruses have caused pandemics historically. And what's happened is they have eventually over time evolved to be much less virulent. So it may be that um, we will all be getting shots. It may be that only some of us will be getting shots. And it may be that this virus will eventually just meld into the background and be nothing more than a cold. We really just have to wait and see. Indeed. Is there such a thing as herd immunity? Yes and no. <laughs> so the, the coronaviruses, we have never um, developed immunity that would stop us from getting a second or third infection from okay. the same virus. However, having been infected or vaccinated protects us from the severe outcomes from these viruses. Right. So herd immunity from severe disease, but not from infection. Interesting stuff. Dr. Jennifer Grant, thanks ever so much for giving us a little bit of your time on Labor Day weekend. Very important conversation to have. We are grateful. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.